Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. The handout reference during this presentation is available for download on the audio section of our website. Uh, if you could please stand, we'll begin in prayer, and I'd like to welcome up Dr. Kennebach for that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill the hearts of thy faithful and kindle in them the fire of thy love. Send forth thy spirits and they shall be created. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant that in the same spirit we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation. Through the same Christ our Lord. Amen. Our Lady Seat of Wisdom. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good evening. I have to say, I'm surprised that you're not in your gardens right now, being as it has finally stopped raining and warmed up. I was talking to one person uh, who works at the southern states where I was buying a few plants and, uh, today, and he said, I haven't gotten a thing planted in my garden. How about you? And I think he was looking for some consolation. And I said, actually, I'm already making salads from my garden. Um, it's been a great spring already. Um, thank you. Um, there's, always, there's always that slight temptation that I succumbed to for a gardener to kind of show off a little bit. I, I, that, was, that was not good. Um, when I, when I, I, honestly, I think of right now, uh, I'm very glad to be here. There's few places that I would rather be than in my garden, and I am glad to be here. There's something about being in the garden where you're, you're, you're so in contact with the world in, I, I, I dare say, in the most real of ways. You can feel as though, and maybe this says something about the world in which we live, you can feel as though you've kind of left the world behind, as though somehow you've, you, you've stepped apart from things. But I, I would like to suggest that, and I'm going to actually come back and use this as an example a little later this evening, um, in, in, in many ways in your garden, you're perhaps most in contact with reality. We spend an awful lot of time moving in, in artificial in an artificial realm. It's actually very interesting to note. Um, Aristotle was much more interested in things that exist by nature than in things that exist by art. Artifacts are very important. They have a central place in, in, in human life. And one main way that reason comes to a proper fruition is through doing art and we're going to talk about that a little bit this evening, well. But at the end of the day, and this relates to something we said last time, the natural world, as St. Thomas says, is 
truly God's art, his artifacts, and to live in it and close to it is in many ways the natural habitat of human reason where human reason was particularly designed to thrive in seeing fundamental truths therein and from them rising to yet higher ones. I'll talk about that a little bit uh, more as we go. But what I want to do, uh, first of all, is uh, review a couple of things we talked about last time. I never, I never tire of looking at the same things again, so I hope those of you who were here last week won't mind a, a quick tour back, and those of you who weren't uh, might appreciate that, in as a, appreciate that as a lead-in to what we'll do this evening. So first of all, I, I reminded you all that philosophy goes to things that are very common in human experience. It, we, we pick up something that is, has often been right there before our eyes, and we, we look at it very closely, and we turn it around. We kind of hold it in our hands, and we, and we turn it around, and we look at the different facets of it, like a diamond, to try to understand it better. Well, our, the object of our examination now is human reason itself, and that basic act of human reason called understanding. So you can say the project we're on is understanding, understanding. Right? That's the, thus the title. We're, we, we've kind of picked up understanding itself, which is really to pick up human reason, and we're turning it around before our eyes, trying to, trying to see the different facets of it. And one thing I suggested last time, to, to do that is to study ourselves in the most fundamental of ways. To try to understand understanding is to begin to understand human nature better. Into legere, the Latin word for to understand, from which then we get the word intellect, means to read deeply in. So we have this right off the bat, it's always interesting to look at the etymology of a word. There's been this sense that what the intellect can do is it goes beyond the senses. The senses are a power of apprehension. The senses take in the world. We perceive or apprehend the world around us using our senses. The senses give us what is there. But the intellect has something in common and is different. Philosophy always, for that matter, the human intellect always, is about sameness and difference. Sameness and difference. To be able to see what is the same between two things and to see what is different. The intellect is the same as sensation in as much as it's in the same genus. It's a power of apprehending. So they are generally, where generally comes from the word genus, a broad kind. They belong to the same broad kind of powers of apprehending or of taking in the world around us. Lower animals with their senses likewise take in the world around them. Right? That's uh, uh, s sitting in my garden and I can, kneeling, crawling, whatever I'm doing in there, I can stop and, and look at that squirrel going by, look at the birds, and 
constantly looking around them. They're, they're taking in the world around them. Or my dog, which is key to having a garden at all, otherwise the deer would eat everything before I ever ate it. A dog particularly, with those astounding same five senses we have, in certain ways sharper than ours. <laughs> taking in the world around him, apprehending. Does a dog know things? Sure, a dog knows things, but we have to watch how we use words here. You can use the word know of the senses. Our senses know things, but there's knowing and there's knowing. Okay? Does the dog know its master? There's knowing and there's knowing. Obviously, in some sense, the dog knows its master. My children know me, the master of the dog, in a way that my dog will never know me. But we use the same word. The dog can sense me and take in various kind of surface characteristics of me, enough to recognize me. And here's an interesting thing. Sometimes recognize or pick up. The dog will smell me at a distance that my children would never smell me, right? So it will know that I'm coming or recognize that it's me at night. That's, that's, you know, that's John. I'm not going to bark right now. That's no, that's no problem, right? That's a kind of apprehension. But the intellect goes deeper. The intellect goes below those surface sensible characteristics. It gets at, as Aristotle or St. Thomas might say, the very what of things. It gets at the essence of things. It gets at the nature of things. We, ever since the dawn of intellect in our life, we go about our way naturally and constantly understanding what things are, at least to some real extent, around us all the time. And we do it so effortlessly that we don't recognize that we're doing it. But we're constantly grasping by our intellect the what's of things, the essences of things, the natures of things. And it's, 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 it's hard at times to, to sort this out. <laughs> Watch this funny question. Does a dog know what a tree is? That's, that's a trick question. And it depends on how you mean the question. Does the dog know what a tree is? Obviously, in some sense, some very obvious sense, the answer to that question is yes. But does a dog know what a tree is? It can recognize trees and, in some sense, treat them the same way. For the practical purposes of animal life, as Aristotle and St. Thomas would point out, their senses serve them just fine. They don't need to know what a tree is in any deeper sense. All they need to know is have a fundamental, all they need to do is have a fundamental recognition of certain sensible characteristics, and that's going to serve their kind of life just fine. For human life, the same as dog life, we wouldn't need reason. We wouldn't have reason. Did we not have reason to put that otherwise? Our life would be the same as a dog's. But given that we have reason, there's a whole new depth and richness to human life because we understand what those things are that we sense. We can read more deeply into things. And literally, thank God that we can. Third point from moving on from last time, our knowledge is fundamentally abstractive. 
The term abstraction is particularly referring to the, the fundamental aspect in Aristotle and St. Thomas's view of how intellection works. In, in a word, we have to begin with sense knowledge. And one of the, one of the key questions that St. Thomas asks in trying to understand human intellectual knowledge, the kind of knowledge we have, again, that sets us apart from the lower animals is, does our intellectual knowledge arise from our sensation? Just hear that with me for just a moment. Does our intellectual knowledge arise from sensation? This is a fabulously beautiful and important question. Great philosophers have said no. In, in some sense, the great Plato himself says no to that. And one of the great differences between Aristotle and Plato is that Aristotle says yes. And St. Thomas follows Aristotle on that. And we can't go into the details of that. But the fundamental principle at work here is this great and noble power of intellection, which so far transcends the senses, still is dependent upon them and begins with what is in them. Intellect can grasp something in another person's face that the senses will never grasp. But were the senses not seeing that face, the intellect could not grasp what it is grasping. I'm going to say that again, and I think, I think we'll all be together on that. Do you see that point? If I don't, if, if I don't see your face, my intellect is absolutely helpless as regards understanding anything that's going on in your face. But right now, if I look at your face, my intellect is going to perceive certain things in what my eyes see that my eyes do not see. Does that make sense to you? Do, do you see that? <laughs> no, we always have to be careful with our with our words. And so there's this fundamental dependence of the intellect on the senses, even while there's this astounding transcendence of the intellect above and beyond the senses. It's as it were, we're always things, even the highest of human realities, the feet of them are always very much in the earth, as it were, in the earth of our senses. And this is why I like to, I like to say to my Students, isn't it a funny situation in the Christendom Chapel? The front, there are these two gigantic statues of angels. And I, and I like to say to the students, have, have you ever thought about the fact, has it ever struck you as odd, that the front of our church, where we worship God, that there are two statues, huge statues of men with gigantic wings on them? Why in the world are there men with wings on them in the front of our church? Is this, is this some kind of joke? Is there such thing as a man with wings? There's not. But we've got two giant statues of them right next to the tabernacle. What in the world is going on with that? It's a funny truth that to help us think about immaterial things, we need images. And so when you want to speak to your angel, you picture something, don't you? 
And it's a, something of a hard reality to remember this. Whatever you picture, I don't care what it is, it's not actually what your angel looks like. Because your angel doesn't look like anything. Are we all right? I hope I'm not scandalizing anybody. But your angel literally doesn't look like anything. But when you and I want to think about one, we picture something. Indeed, we picture a face, as is very fitting. It has something that's analogously a face, but it actually doesn't have any eyes, nose, or mouth. But it speaks. Okay, so, so in even these things I'm saying to you, this is, I, I love this aspect of being rational animals. It's, it's, it, it, it's funny, it's, it's almost comic, the, the, the lower kind of intellect we have, of how it functions, and it requires a kind of humility. And here, this point that we made last time, and I happily like to come back to, to be a good, rational human being, we have to have the humility to recognize the extreme importance of our senses and our imagination. And that to form the imagination is always a way of forming the intellect. And to malform the imagination is always to malform the intellect in how we think about the world, and even and including immaterial things. How you picture the highest of things, picture, sense images is of the first importance. Another point from last time, knowledge is a way of having an object of becoming something more than we were before we knew that object. Knowledge is a way of having an object and of becoming something more than we were before we knew it. And here we, we, we looked at the beautiful aspect of God makes us, in a sense, capable of the infinite by, though we are restricted to being just humans and will never be anything but human and we wouldn't want to be anything but human, by our nature, by our intellect, we are able in some sense to have and be it all. For we can be so expanded and become so much more. I used the example last time of it. It's, 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 it's easy to picture the kind of power of the statement Often we think of it when you're saying goodbye to somebody. Hopefully it's perhaps said at times when we're not saying goodbye to somebody. I am so much more than I would have been simply for knowing you. What would I be did I not know you? No one can ever, ever take from me what I am now for knowing you. What more precious stores do we have than knowledge of such things like that? Which again just gives us that insight into how we have become more. We, we have more. This is a nice insight also, by the way, into the importance of a liberal education. I, um, 
my students just graduated, or my seniors just graduated, and graduation is always an interesting time, an emotional time, a profound time to look back and look forward. And one of the things I particularly appreciate is taking the opportunity just to look back and, 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 to, and to kind of even enter into the students' minds and reminisce. Remember, remember that time in class where we first saw how Aristotle points out this great connection between, this is what the term voluntary means, and when you know what the term voluntary means, then you know that you are responsible, in a sense, eternally, for everything you do, for what I did, came from me, in a way that what a dog does does not come from the dog. What I do comes from me, and so I'm responsible for it, for it is mine. Just, just one little simple example, the connection of voluntary and responsibility. Beautiful point from Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics. When one really sees it, one will never forget it. One is much more for having seen it. Truth, we went on to see, is a conformity of mind and intellect. Truth is always a conformity of a mind, pardon me, of my, mind and reality. I said that wrong. Mind, mind and intellect are used interchangeably. Truth is a conformity of mind or intellect and reality or things. And so we saw this is the basis for saying that all things can be said to be true because they conform ultimately to God's understanding of them. So things are true as in conformity with how God made them. Our minds are true. What a beautiful adjective that is, true. Our thoughts, our judgments, our insights are true when what we have in our mind is a real reflection, a real, as it were, presence of what is out there, a real conformity. What is out there is what is in here. That is truth. Which leads nicely to then a point that we didn't get to last time, and now this is, this is new material. It was a quotation on the uh, handout last time, but I put it again on the, on the handout this time because we get, didn't get to it last time. And so you may look at the first quotation on your handout today. This is Aristotle, 4th century BC, Athens, writing in his great book On the Soul, what it, referring, referring to the soul, what it thinks must be in it, just as characters may be said to be on a writing tablet, on which as yet nothing actually stands written. This is exactly what happens with the mind. What I wanted to give you here is this is a very, very famous line from Aristotle that is often put in the Latin, the tabula rasa. Aristotle holds that the human mind, the human soul, the human intellect is a tabula, T-A-B-U-L-A, rasa, R-A-S-A, a blank slate. The human intellect is this astounding power that itself is like a blank slate. He said this before, it's in the Sound of Music song, that is waiting to be written on. It is a power that is able to take in, to perceive what is out there. And truth, of course, is when 
what is, what is now written on this slate is a real image of what is out there. So the neat thing, there's a lot of different facets to this. Just one thing I'll note about this is there are some who have claimed that humans have innate knowledge. Innate knowledge is, is, is a tricky notion. Aristotle has a very subtle view. In, in, in a word, it's this. He rejects any notion of innate knowledge, that you're born knowing something. He says you're, you're, when you're born, your intellect is a tabula rasa. It's a power that's ready to go, that's ready, as it were, to receive reality and to be written on. Now, there are certain things, Aristotle and St. Thomas say, that you will be able naturally to know. You tur turn you and your intellect loose in the world. There are certain things for sure you will be able to see. And so basically most everybody comes to know them because it's so much of our nature to be able to see them. And so that can make you think, well, that was innate knowledge. The knowledge was already there. Saul says, no, the knowledge wasn't already there. It just came so naturally that it might have seemed as though it was already there. But we begin with our intellect as a tabula rasa, a blank slate. It's interesting to think what is necessary in order to make sure that the world, the reality, becomes well inscribed in us. The wise man is one whose slate has been well inscribed with what is out there, which is not a given. It's not a given that that happens. Ladies and gentlemen, everything that we've been discussing here can be called epistemological realism. The title for these two lectures was Understanding, Understanding Objective Truth and Epistemological Relativism. Well, first of all, what I wanted to give you was realism, epistemological realism, as opposed to relativism. This view of the great ancients and medievals and many moderns too, but I'm particularly using Aristotle and St. Thomas as an example, who have confidence in the power of human reason and who see it as being at the center of our human identity. There's a couple other points that I want to make about now the consequences of epistemological realism. What is at stake in our having some understanding of understanding? What is at stake in holding that human reason really does work, that we can count on it to be able to come to see certain foundational truths. What is at stake? I want to give you a little sense of what's at stake. Then I'm going to make for you a couple of arguments against it and give you a couple of suggestions of how we might answer that and, and wrap up. I, I, I considered trying to go through some different major thinkers and I just thought, you know, that's, that's, that, that's going to be too much. We don't need to go through different major thinkers. I think that what I want to have achieved, I hope, is basic principles of epistemological realism, Aristotle and St. Thomas, a little bit right now about what's at stake. If, if it ends up being denied, whew, what we're going to lose, tell you a little bit about how it might be denied and then how we might try to address that. All right, so our ability to know the natures of things particularly to know our own nature, has great consequences, not just our own, but obviously human nature is kind of at the height of the various natures in the natural world around us that we can come to know. Let's just consider a few of the things that are at stake, and I just want, in my pointing these out, I have an eye towards 
and you'll feel that as I go through these, mm, the great danger we're going to have of, wow, if we live in a society that doesn't have confidence in the power and the beauty of human reason, then it's this kind of thing that you're going to lose. But I want to first show you what the connection is. So our ability to use our intellect with confidence to come to know the natures of things around us, including our human nature, is first of all, the basis for insight into spiritual realities. It's the basis for insight into spiritual realities. By spiritual here, I mean higher immaterial realities. Let me put it to you this way. If we can't know the nature of water, the nature of trees, the nature of sheep, then we won't be able to come to any reliable knowledge of the human soul, virtues, the nature of friendship, the nature of community, the existence and the attributes of God. So in St. Thomas, in any case, you can't just skip over all of these lower things. If the intellect can't reliably come to grasp things of the natural world around us, if we have a skeptical human reason to come to know the natural world around us, then at stake here is the ability of human and the stepping stones things like what are the causes that stand above and behind the things in the world around us. If, we're not, if we can't know the things in the world around us, we're certainly not going to be able to come to grasp any aspects of the causes that are higher and beyond these things in the world around us. Secondly, a reliable ability to be able to come to know the world around us is the basis for doing human action well. And the reliability of human reason and coming to know the world around us is the basis for doing human action well. And I want to divide that into two. Morality and then the realm of making. In the realm of making, we could divide into the aesthetic arts and the productive arts. I love this point. We'll be able to look at it very, very briefly. Connection between the ability of human reason to just come to know the natures of things around us in general, once that comes into question, hand in hand with that is then a doubt, a relativism, a subjectivism about basic moral truths. You can see this very clearly historically. In general, a denial of moral truths and of a moral code that applies to all human beings goes hand in hand with a rejection of the ability to, of reason to know the natures of things in the world around us. And so morality itself is on the line. Is human reason the kind of thing that is going to be able to function in such a way that will be able to come to truths, real truths, about morality. This struck me right there. I'm just going to make a, make a, make a side point. There's, there's, it, it's amazing how what's called philosophy 
can be perverted and you can have extremely refined intellectual points made that are an incredible twisting of reality, such as one common moral view now called emotivism, just a quick side point, that claims that every moral judgment that is ever made can never be true or false. There is no such thing as a true or false moral judgment, says emotivism, for moral judgments, they say, are nothing more than an expression of your feelings. Does this sound like something that you, you've heard? It is incarnated all around us. Note, there's a philosophical view behind it. it just, I'm going to spend 30 seconds on it because I think you can, you can see this point. Take any, any moral judgment, like stealing is wrong. Stealing is wrong is a proposition. By your and my view, you can ask of the proposition, stealing is wrong, is it true? If I say the proposition, stealing is wrong, is it true? Is it in conformity, by our definition, with the way things are? If I say stealing is wrong, is that judgment in conformity with something in reality? Is it a true judgment? Are we communicating? Is everyone all right? So, so uh, we certainly want to hold that that is a true judgment. But watch, note how tricky reality is. Someone can come along and say, I understand what you mean when you say my, your judgment, the tree is green, is true. For there's a green tree out there, and I see that your judgment, the tree is green, corresponds to the green tree out there. But if you say stealing is wrong, What's out there that corresponds to that? Well, at the end of the day, you and I are going to say it corresponds to something real about human life. It's not something that science is going to be able to, I'm going to come back and say something about this. It's not something that science is going to be able to put a measure on. But nonetheless, it's something true about reality itself that stealing is a wrong way of acting. This is a true statement. But nonetheless, emotivism comes along and, and, and does this, makes this very tricky assertion. Anytime you make a moral judgment, all you're doing is expressing how you feel. It's not saying anything about reality, it's just expressing how you feel. So when you say stealing is wrong, that's basically what you're just saying, I don't like stealing. So it's neither a true nor a false statement to say stealing is wrong. You're just expressing a negative feeling about it if you say stealing is wrong. Now, that's, that's, a very, that's a very sophisticated view right there. Sophisticatedly perverse, for it has just undermined all of human life by denying that there's moral truth. Right? Moral judgments are neither true nor false by that view. You see how morality itself has to be ultimately a matter of truth. But if the ability of reason to know truth has been undermined, then hand in hand in that, the ability of reason to understand moral truths will be undermined. There is much at stake. Something that, so we, don't, we don't need to give examples of how obviously the ability of human reason to know moral truths is being undermined in society around us all the time. Here's another interesting aspect, one that I'm particularly interested in that I'm just going to mention in, in, in passing, and that is the realm of, 
of other kinds of art, not, not morality, but now in the realm of human doing, in the realm of human doing and making, such as the art of architecture. Is there any such thing at all as an objective standard in the realm of architecture? Or is the realm of architecture itself, or here's another one, music, is that completely relative and subjective? Is there any matter of truth here at all? Is, should there be any foundation of the realm of the aesthetic arts and the productive arts? Is there any root in our knowledge of the natural world around us? Should there be any connection between the arts and the various productive things that we do? Is there a connection between them and truths of reality, or are they absolutely unhinged from it? Ladies and gentlemen, historically, you can see that art tended to be a certain way. When people have confidence in their ability to reason, to know an objective truth about the world around us, which, by the way, goes along with objective moral code, that also led to a certain kind of architecture and various arts. Now, it is common that in those realms, too, there is seen, there is held that there is nothing objective whatsoever. It's all just a pure matter of human creativity. Fascinating area. I think, you, I hope you feel a little bit what I'm suggesting there. We can talk about it more in the question and answer if you, if you like. I'm, I'm going to leave that there. So, what is at stake, ladies and gentlemen, in epistemological realism? If the ability of reason to un ability of reason to know the truths of the world around us has been undermined, I suggest for your consideration, what, it, what is at stake there is everything that you hold most dear. Faith, community, morality, culture. To reject the ability of reason to know the truths of reality is to reject our own nature, it's to reject our very selves, it's to reject human life. All right, let's talk a little bit now about ways that epistemological realism can be directly attacked. Before we do that, and we're going to be all, not going to have a lot of time on, and I hope you're not too frustrated by that, I, I, I more wanted to spend the time on the positive side, what's at stake, we are going to look a little bit at, at the attack, but even here, before we look specifically at the attack, I want to remind you of something that's extremely important. There is no truth that is undeniable in the sense of you won't find someone who will deny it. <laughs> there's deniable, there's undeniable, and there's undeniable. There are certain things that should be undeniable, but that doesn't mean that they're actually undeniable. Well, the reason I'm saying this to you is, is, is very important. What, one of the things that will discourage you when you go out there is how you will find very intelligent people who will be denying fundamental things that we've just talked about right here in this realm. 
And you're going to think to yourself, oh my gosh, well, it, so it sounded good. It sounded like this made sense. It sounded like this, how, how could someone not, not want to hold this? And then someone that otherwise seems to be a perfectly reasonable person is just saying, oh, what, you, you, you still think that stuff? That's ridiculous. That's not true. Don't you realize that science has shown that X, Y, and Z are simply, simply not true? It can be alarming that so many people deny so many fundamental things. Even in the teeth of you feel, well, actually I do have a good argument here, and you give a good argument and the person just completely brushes it off and says, you think that, that argument showed your point? It didn't. It doesn't move me at all. And, and, and you're scratching your head or your, your, your world is, is swirling. And, and all I want to say is this. It's always been the case that there will be people who will deny things that should have been undeniable. And just because your argument does not convince certain people, it doesn't mean it's not a convincing argument. There are convincing arguments that still don't convince people. Don't judge the convincibleness, the convincingness of an argument necessarily by the number of people it convinces. This is important for you to understand in a world where from the cradle people are being raised in a culture that incarnates relativism in countless ways. Indeed, our society also tends to incarnate the moral view that I just referred to as emotivism in countless ways, in ways that are not necessarily bright lights, but it's just going on in our education system, in our entertainment, in our arts, where it, it, it's relentlessly being suggested to all of us. And so it's not a surprise. People's imaginations have been formed, to go back to a point from earlier, completely in accord with a worldview that is relativistic. So th this is a bracing thought. It's a difficult thought. You can't hold yourself responsible necessarily for being able to be prepared to explain to everybody exactly in such a way that they'll be able to see why they should understand that human reason is completely reliable against all of these great arguments of modern philosophy. That said, let's look at a few aspects of relativism. The term really can mean a number of things. Fundamentally, it's a rejection of objective truth. What we're calling relativism here is fundamentally a rejection of objective truth. You can say it's a conviction that there is no truth or little truth. Depends on what flavor here. There's no truth or little truth that can be reliably discovered by men. Right? This, this, this is what I mean here by relativism. A conviction that there is not truth or in any case little truth that can be reliably discovered by men. Look at, let's look at a different couple different forms that it takes. There's a very extreme form of it. Let's just go ahead to the extreme form. Frankly, the extreme form is in many ways the most realistic. It's just complete, total relativism. This would be, for instance, existentialism, the likes of the great French thinker Jean-Paul Sartre, the German thinker Friedrich Nietzsche. These people just explicitly hold 
there is not objective truth that what you and I call human nature, the kind of human thing, is simply a pure freedom that can create itself in any way it wants to. I mean, this is relativism in its most pure and extreme form that says that to be human is to be free. Now, note, note the incredible power of the term free can be used in so many ways. Note how they take this term free, which of course is, when understood rightly, true of human beings, and they say to be human is to be free. What they mean by fr free is a radical, a root freedom, which means you can literally define yourself and human life, reality itself, in any way that you choose. This view, ladies and gentlemen, at least actually has a certain consistency to it. That if that's true, then it's true. Everything really is relative, right? I mean, it's, it's actually the other forms of relativism that still want to hold on to certain things as objectively true, but then have a whole big area over here of relativism. That's actually less consistent. The likes of Sartre and Nietzsche are, that just kind of laid it, laid it out there and said, look, we absolutely reject this whole notion of there being some unchanging given nature whatsoever. To be human is to be free, is to be self-determining. They're absolutely, and of course what they're particularly interested in is morality. There's absolutely nothing that is given morally. You simply determine yourself freely and you should do so boldly. All right? How, how does one argue against that? It's very difficult to argue against that. It's such a, a, a brazen and full-bore view that it's, they're not going to be phased by certain things that you normally would have said, well, well then, that means you have to be all right if, if people kill one another. And they just look at you and say, try right. Now you're understanding my position. All the things that you, that you thought you could appeal to, to say, well, certainly you're not going to hold such and such, they say, no, of course I do hold such and such. And, and they're actually being cons consistent by doing that. We, 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 I, I, I don't hear, uh, we don't have the time for me to give you my suggestion, what does one do with someone like that, other than I'll just say to you, in short form, what do I, what do I say to my students? There, that person doesn't need an argument. That person needs to be shown something very beautiful. I think that person needs to see love. There's not an argument that's going to that's, that's going to get through there in general. It's going to be some powerfully good reality that just all of a sudden wakes them up and breaks them out. That would be, in the case, my suggestion. Let's, let's, let's look at some more tame varieties, though often m more destructive because they're more appealing and they're, they're, therefore they will be held by more people. For instance, many will hold that there are some objective truths about reality that can be known, but then when it comes to the realm of the moral, we'll just say we're relativists in the realm of morality. Right? This, this, is, this is a classic thing. 
a very common form of this will be to hold the truths of science, that's objective truth. We have objective truths of science, but otherwise all those things that people say about human nature and about the spiritual realm and the realm of morality, all of those things that can't be measured, all of those things, that is where there's relativism. Relativism? There's nothing true, objective, that's going to bind you, so people are, as it were, free to hold whatever they want. I want to say a quick word here about this, the kind of modern fixation with science. This, this, this little window here is going to be necessarily short, but I think it's an important part in, in trying to get a sense of the world around us on this. When we use the word science, the way that the word is used by we moderns, by us moderns today. Science originally meant any ordered body of sure knowledge. That's what Aristotle means by the term science. An ordered body of sure or certain knowledge. That's what the term science originally meant. It was used by the ancients and by the medievals, sciencia and there's many different kinds of sciences. It's a long story, an incredibly dramatic story as how, why the term science came to be used for the very slim band of things that it is now used for. But science here, in the modern sense, refers to what is quantifiable and measurable. This particularly goes back to the father of modern philosophy named Descartes. Science refers to what is quantifiable and measurable. This is a very big topic, but I'm just going to want to point out to you, again, a very common view today would be to say, okay, we grant that reason works when you're talking about science. Using science as it has been used, first of all, by modern philosophers and now commonly by the common man to refer to what can be measured it is material, it is quantifiable in the original sense of the term, it's a matter of quantity. It tends to be very mathematical. Mathematicals, mathematics deals with quantity. So we can be certain of things that you can measure. You can get under the microscope. You can, you can see things happening. What are we gonna do with that? At the end of the day, ladies and gentlemen, to begin to address that, we're going to have to distinguish between different kinds of sciences, between different kinds of knowledge. The knowledge that is here being called science of the realm of the measurable and the quantifiable is a very beautiful aspect of reality. It is an area, as Aristotle would have pointed out, you can have great and certain knowledge of. There's few things that are going to be more obviously certain than that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Math is very certain. It's very certain in general because of its great limitedness. It's not going very deep into reality. The quantifiable part of reality is not very deep. There are many deeper aspects of reality that obviously are not measurable and quantifiable. May I give you just a quick example? Paternity. I'm a father. What does modern science tell you about paternity? A, a lady in the front row said it would refer to DNA. N nice point. 
Modern science would have some things to say about paternity. It would have some true things to say about paternity. This is a very obvious example of a key aspect of human life. One that's absolutely critical that we understand. What does it mean to be a father? Something that people have thought about for as long as humans have been human. If we reduce human knowledge to what is measurable and quantifiable in the modern sense, the term science, we are beginning with a presupposition that is going to cut out the most important aspects of reality. I'm not saying that, that science in the modern sense doesn't study extremely important things and very complex things too. It does. And it has, we've made great advances in it. But what we need to see is this, we need to have the ability to make distinctions. There are key aspects of reality, the approach of modern science obviously is fundamentally inadequate to address. So what you see here, ladies and gentlemen, is the view that is fixated on the reduces sure human knowledge to science in the modern sense of the term. Note what it always ends up doing with human beings. It always ends up having an extremely important word here reductionist view of human life. Human life will tend to be reduced down to what? Things that we have in common with lower things because those are the things that are measurable and quantifiable. So, you, we're going to reduce human beings down to what we have in common with lower animals. And even there, it's, there's going to be a focus on the measurable and the quantifiable. Or, or even worse, we're going to be called a mass of molecules and reduced to the laws of physics. Physics in the modern sense, again, that was Aristotle's term. So the laws of physics, which are going to not take into account key aspects of life and the realm of the rational. So what do we have? We have a relativism here that is willing to accept science. Again, I wanted to point this out because it's important. Most of people in the culture around us will say that they've taken the, the, bot, the bottom line that I think has become the most common view. You can trust science, but as regards all those deeper issues, the main things that philosophers have always asked about, most of all, that most of all human life itself centers around, they become relativist on that. Now we can't know about that. And interestingly, why in the common view? Well, because science can't address it. It's not measurable and quantifiable, the one thing that we can trust. What's an example of something that gets left out? What's it mean to be a good father? How are we going to know that? You can't put it under a microscope. It's not measurable and quantifiable. Is human reason capable of answering the question, what is fatherhood? Do you think that human reason can answer the question, what is good fatherhood? I ask you. Do you think it can? I, for one, hope it can. But not only do I hope, I have confidence that it can. But it's going to require reason moving on a plane that must not be reduced down to the scientific. I wanted to mention liberalism. 30 seconds on liberalism. I'm going to end up squeezing a few things in here in our last five minutes. Don't be alarmed if I move a little bit quickly, with apologies. Liberalism, classical liberalism. A, a, a social, political, moral view 
that has formed much, particularly of modern Western civilization, very much America, was very much rooted in a skepticism, a doubting of the ability of human reason to come to know key truths about the human good. A classic move that is made, ladies and gentlemen, by those who have this skepticism, and you see this all around us, is to say, we don't have confidence that human reason can come to know these key truths about human nature, about the good life. So what are we going to do? We're going to build a political system whose most fundamental principle is this. Simply allow for the people to have the most diverse thoughts they possibly can, as long as they don't hurt one another and they live together in peace, each can pursue the human good in whatever way they want to. That's a skepticism, ladies and gentlemen, and that in many ways is foundational to our, our, our own political system. Now, that's a, I, I, I'm venturing there into deep waters. I'm not saying that means our political system is bad at the core, but it's problematic. What does a political system look like where we have greater confidence that we can come to understand what a good human life lived in community looks like? Communities that have confidence that you can understand what good human life in community looks like. Communities have confidence that we can do that. They have something very special and they can build something in that shared conviction that relativists and skeptics can never share and never have. A few major arguments for in favor of relativism. I'm just going to tick them off. The unreliability of the census, the disagreements among people, and then we cannot get outside our own thoughts or get outside our own minds. So people attack the reliability of the census. People point out the disagreements among people and then they assert that we can't get outside of our own thoughts or minds. All right, I had a quick word I wanted to say in response to each one of these two. I've been off a little bit more than we're going to be able to um, chew and swallow here. I'm going I'm to just um, go quickly for the second one, disagreement among people. A, a very strong and persuasive argument for relativism. If there's objective truth that's the same for everybody, why do so many different people and different cultures hold different things? Very important question, brought up by the ancients, brought up by moderns. It has to be reckoned with. Two very quick thoughts. One, we need to come to appreciate the connection between our moral character and what we think is true or not about reality. You've heard it perhaps said that one of the main reasons that people leave the church is not normally the reason that they say that they left the church. We don't need to get more specific at the moment, but very often it has to do with various moral weaknesses. This is a nice example that can point out our moral character can very much affect how we think about the truths of reality. So the fact that different people holds different things. I'm not saying it can be all reduced down to this, but we do have to reckon with this, particularly if in a culture we're not working together to help form each other well. There's going to be rampant bad appetite, 
bad desires, bad formation, which is going to lead to a dramatic and cultural-wide blindness and a lack of ability to see basic truths. As a gentleman, this was captured by the great Greeks who said, you have to have virtue if you're going to see the truth. It was captured by our Lord when he said, the pure in heart will see. So at times there's moral reasons. I'm not saying it's always that. But there can be serious moral reasons for the disagreement between people. The other quick thing I want to point out there is, in fact, there is a remarkable agreement between people. It's easy to point to what there's disagreement about. There's a remarkable evidence of what we can call natural law at work in people by a transcultural agreement about so many fundamental things, which we can't go into at the moment. I just want to wrap up by saying the great disjunction, ladies and gentlemen, the great question. At the end of the day, either as the pre-Socratic philosopher Protagoras said, either man is the measure of reality or reality is the measure of man. Yeah. All, the great, all the great fundamental positions were there in the Greeks. Protagoras, someone who was very much at odds with Plato. Famous line is on your quotation sheet there. Man is the measure of reality. Sartre could have said that. Nietzsche could have said that. Versus, show me the man who has the humility to see that the human vocation is first of all to be formed, to realize that the truths of reality we must submit ourselves to. We don't determine what they are, we discover them. We allow them to become inscribed upon us. Therein is human happiness and full human fulfillment of man, the rational animal, to have the truth of reality inscribed in us. Thank you very much for your attention. All right, does anyone have questions? In addition to relativism, our culture is also saying we don't have free will. Is the issue of free will a separate topic or is it related to relativism? What a great question. Um, well, it, it, it's, um, it's definitely related. It, it might, it, it's, it's separate to a certain extent in as much as it can be treated topically independently, but they are, they are, they are absolutely um, related. Uh, I mean, whether we are free or not is something that can be determined, um, and there is a truth of it. I mean, one thing about I mean, those who deny that there is human freedom, on that point, of course, they are not relativists, right? They are holding that there's an objective truth. And so it's, it's important to see there's a lot of bad philosophy out there that's not relativism. Relativism is not always, is, is not the bad guy. There, there are many who hold that there is objective truth that can be known and that it, they're holding that something that's actually contrary to reality. So here, th those that deny that there's freedom. 
if, if you're denying that there is freedom, then you're holding that that's absolutely the case, and you're holding that's the case for everybody. So to that extent, you're not a relativist. I, so did you see what I'm saying? So to that extent, I, I, I would distinguish. And so, um, you know, as, as Chesterton pointed out, the, the tr truth is like a tightrope. There's, there, there's, you, you fall off either way. I mean, there's, 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 there's all, there's an abyss of error all around it. The, tr the truth is, 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 is a narrow way. It's by far and away the most beautiful, uh, but there's so many ways that we can go wrong. Um, my question for you, and this is probably a larger discussion, maybe you can explain the whole thing, or maybe it's just too big of a question, but generally, um, when you say that people had a better understanding of morality and what was true back in the day, and their art and architecture reflected that, what kind of was it really reflecting that was like the true beauty, like how was it really reflecting something universal, like that it doesn't now? Um. Okay, I'm, I'm going I'm I'm to throw it at you this way. Um, the word nature I, I, I've used a lot. Um, I, I, I would put it this way. Great Greek architecture, for instance, is, is very much rooted in a conviction that there are certain proportions that are naturally uh, important and that they are proportions that fit with human perception in a very special way. And so they were held to be proportions that are objectively right. I would, I, I would point this out. My wife is always great at pointing these things out. We love to talk about this type of thing, where she'll look at um, a, a lot of houses now. That, I mean, again, most architecture now, it, it's interesting. It, it, it's funny. A kind of deviation from traditional proportions has now become standard. So now you have, you, have, you, have, you have this standard rejection of traditional proportions. And so many houses, you look at them and you just say, ugh. It's just, that's not right. It's, it's, not, it's not the right proportion. And, 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 and I, I'd be so bold to say it's, it's a kind of rejection of, 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 of nature. Uh, and where nature has, even in these very simple ways, a kind of a kind of a proportion to a proportion is a kind of order and that's a kind of reflection of higher orders including even a moral order to, to make the case for how those things are connected is uh, takes a little bit of work I like to point out how Plato and Aristotle had a conviction that moral order can be placed in and expressed in music good music itself has harmonies that themselves are a natural expression of moral order, such that you can have prayerful music. Prayer is a spiritual order, but it can be incarnated in a sound order. But there are natural harmonies and there are natural disharmonies, and there's an objectivity to that, even if some cultural relativity cultural relativity. There's a real natural objectivity. So again, I mentioned this is an area that I'm particularly interested in. It would, it would take, it would take uh, more exposition, but I, but I would just argue there is an intrinsic connection between holding an objective order of higher truths and a moral order and how that actually can be ex expressed in architecture, music, etc. We have a question coming in online from Beth. She asks, angels are pure spirit as we know, yet how is it they appear to people in scripture and to the saints? If this is not the reality, how do you explain this? Is it an illusion of their minds? 
Um, reasonable question. St. Thomas at one point addresses, there's, there's a couple different ways. He says, um, uh, one way that angels would appear, I don't remember it exactly, so I'm not going to say it exactly right, but one way that um, angels would appear is, quote, in a dream. Right? And so what that means is, obviously, the angel himself is not in the dream. But if the angel manipulates the, the images in, in your dream, then the angel's communicating something to you in your dream. I think so. There's, there's no there's no deception going on. Saint Joseph certainly understood that angels themselves are not in his dream. But if the angel says something to him in the dream, you can the, something can be communicated through those images. And so the uh, the angel himself is not appearing, but the angel is communicating through those images. And so that's why it's that's that's not a deception. In the last uh, year and a half or so, the whole concept of transgender has become very popular. Um, yet, you know, as a comparison of relativism and scientific proof, the science community, the medical community, has good scientific evidence-based um, results to show that this is not a good thing. Um, and yet, science, you know, we are not using science to show that, defeat the idea of relativism and acceptance. Uh, I have a quick comment on that uh, that would be this. Obviously, it's a, it's a tricky topic. I, I completely agree that here science can be very helpful in pointing out natural, biological, structural, chemical, hormonal differences uh, between men and women that are natural. So, at the end of the day, I would say, though I think particularly what we're going to need today is, I'm going to take this back to my example of paternity. The paternity has a, has a chemical, biological aspect to it. The most essential aspect of paternity is not chemical and biological. And at the end of the day, the difference between man and woman, while very much rooted in bodily differences, there are spiritual differences, and there's a difference that the difference is most of all understood when we see the difference of their role in the home. So m my personal approach is, I mean, again, it depends on the audience uh, and the context. The, the, the scientific aspect is important, but at the end of the day, I, I think that it's only going to be one. This is it's only the, uh, this issue. We're only going to make progress. I would say one. I mean, we, we need to evangelize on this, and I think the truth, particularly, that we need to share is going to be truth, particularly of a spiritual nature and of the beautiful design of nature, which shows up in the bodily differences, is particularly one that one sees in the well-functioning household, where you see that there are different roles, roles that are of nature, that, again, could not ever be completely captured by science, though there is a material quantifiable side to it. And I like to emphasize those, though again, people are very resistant to that too. Can I, can I just, there's a quotation on the sheet from David Hume, a, very, a major, from a school of empiricism, and it, and, and it very much connected to what we can call relativism, and I wanted to read this quotation. I'm affrighted and confounded with that forlorn solitude in which I am placed in my philosophy. And what I wanted to just particularly, I wanted to sound the no freedom, I'd like to end on this. All true communion between human persons 
is always a communion in truth. It's always a communion, especially in deeper truths. There's a certain communion in lower truths, but you only have so much communion in knowing together that two plus two equals four. But if you have a communion in a truth about what it means to be a father and a son, about what it means to be a husband and wife, about what it means to be friends, about what it means to be children of God, about what it means to be called to eternal life, this is what allows you to have communion between people. I just think it's so remarkable, this major modern figure. I'm affrighted and confounded with that forlorn solitude in which I'm placed in my philosophy. Relativism gives you solitude. We live in an age of loneliness. Real communion is always communion in deeper truths. The only thing that can overcome human solitude is seeing deeper truths together. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist. Pray for us.